Welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is Reverend Skylar Vogel, the senior minister here, and thank you for watching. What follows this introduction is a video from our service on February 14th, 2021, where we explore the theme of wealth inequality, taxing the ultra-wealthy, and our UU values. You may see it in video or audio, whether you are joining us on YouTube or through one of the various podcast streaming sites. In this clear clip, you will hear the reading and the reflection from our service, as well as a moment of justice that relates to our service theme. Following that, we hope that you'll join myself and Ember Kelly, our Director of Religious Education, for a lively discussion where we go deeper into the service theme together. You're invited to check out our video and audio podcast each week, posted on our website, our Facebook, YouTube, and your favorite podcast streaming site. We are also working to upload them onto Instagram. If you like what you see, we hope you'll give us a positive review with a like, comment, share, subscribe, just to help share Fourth Universalist in the world. Thank you again for watching. We begin with our reading. As we reflect today on wealth inequality, our reading today explores the hypocrisy of how our resources are allocated. The words that follow are excerpts from the speech the Three Evils of Society by Martin Luther King Jr. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. We cry out against welfare handouts to the poor, but generously approve an oil depletion allowance to make the rich richer. Six Mississippi plantations receive more than a million dollars a year not to plant cotton. But no provision is made to feed the tenant farmer who is put out of work by the government subsidy. The crowning achievements in hypocrisy must go to those staunch Republicans and Democrats of the Midwest and West who were given land by our government when they came here as immigrants from Europe. They were given education through the land-grant colleges. They were provided with agricultural agents to keep them abreast of forming trends. They were granted low-interest loans to aid in the mechanization of their farms. And now that they have succeeded in becoming successful, they are paid not to farm. And these are the same people that now say to black people whose ancestors were brought to this country in chains and who were emancipated in 1863 without being given land to cultivate or bread to eat, that they must pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. What they truly advocate here is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. Sometimes I practice a little game in my head. 
I imagine trying to explain something about the world to a child and then imagine what they would say about it. Buddhists would call it a practice of connecting to the beginner's mind, a way of imagining the world from fresh eyes, free from baggage and assumptions that cloud our vision. I've been thinking about this especially in relation to wealth inequality in the United States and just how absurd it is. For example, if you were to tell children that the three richest Americans had as much money as 150 million other Americans, I bet they would tell you that was unfair. If you were to tell children that people with white skin have 10 times more wealth in America than those with darker skin, they would probably think that something was horribly broken. And they would also think it was pretty bad that if you told them that during this terrible year, the wealthiest Americans got a lot wealthier and everyone else got a lot poorer, that would be bad. Looking at the world through the beginner's mind to the eyes of a child, it helps us recognize just how fundamentally unjust the world is, specifically with wealth inequality. Morally, we cannot justify it because there is no morality in it. There's no way to justify how a few people have more than they will ever need, while millions of others struggle simply to survive. If you saved $100 a day, it would take you over 27,000 years to have a billion dollars. No one could ever need that much money in multiple lifetimes. And yet, we as a society just keep on going, accepting it like that should be normal, like it has to be that way. Proposals of a maximum wealth law or suggestions that billionaires should be abolished are considered laughable and impossible, un-American, or even hurtful of people's feelings. So today I want to challenge you to use your beginner's mind to push through these standard reactions to use your moral imagination to accept not what is, but imagine what could be, or at the very least should be. To push yourself to go beyond the limiting reality that our society gives us, and instead cultivate courage, creativity, and boldness. It's true that part of the problem of wealth inequality is individual greed, and there is a lot of that. But another part of it is structural and systemic, and our society is far too uncritical about it. Too often we ignore the great needs of millions who have close to nothing, while celebrating those who amass wealth, even when they behave like mythical dragons hoarding gold and gems. Or too often laws and policies are created to benefit those who have far more than they will ever need, instead of those who don't have close to enough. Too often we see wealth as a product of hard work or genius and poverty as laziness or stupidity rather than what is actually true, that luck and circumstance matter a great deal and that the poor are some of the hardest workers in the world. Too often we never question just how great fortunes are made from the work of others who were harmed on the path to profit. We see this in almost every purchase we make. We complain about the price of fair trade products or ethically sourced goods, forgetting that this is because those companies are simply doing the radical thing 
of paying workers what they are owed. The reason why Amazon is so fast and cheap, the reason why Walmart and TJ Maxx have such good deals is because somewhere in those companies, hardworking people are being mistreated. They are paid far below the living wage, perhaps without job security or health insurance or enough to send their kids to college. And it is from their oppression that our low prices come. But that is not the only thing that happens because from their oppression does come great profit, but for their bosses and CEOs and stockholders. We need to recognize when we talk about wealth inequality that in almost all cases, extreme wealth can only be created through injustice, especially in our current system. When you see extreme wealth, you should assume that someone somewhere has been taken advantage of. We don't think of those people, though, because when we get that cheap product, because they're not the people with powerful connections. They're not the people that journalists know to call. They're not the people whose concerns dictate laws or who the politicians seek out for donations and ideas. Those who benefit from these oppressions, they may not be immoral people in the sense that they are cruel or malicious. Many of them are lovely and generous and thoughtful, but far too many in our society lack a moral imagination to see beyond that status quo and the vision and courage to challenge it. I want us to raise the moral bar because suffering is created through wealth inequality and that suffering is undeniable. We can start this work by looking local. We are fortunate to live in a moment when at least in New York State, there is a concerted effort to address wealth inequality. It comes at a time of great need when the state is facing massive budget shortfalls due to the pandemic, shortfalls that will lead to cut in, cuts in social services and education that will push millions deeper into poverty, all when the rich have only gotten richer. This movement to address this is called Invest in Our New York. It's a movement of moral imagination. It envisions what could be if we thought big enough, dreamed boldly enough. If we looked through that beginner's mind, the eyes of the child, and really thought about how messed up this disparity of wealth was and risked envisioning another way. The movement seeks to raise taxes on the wealthiest members of our community to protect and serve those who have far less than they need. It seeks to take money from those who will not miss it to give those to those who need help surviving. Now to be clear, no legislation is perfect. I am not a tax expert. And I know that there are those in this community and beyond who have legitimate critiques of some of the specific parts of these proposals from Invest in R New York. But that should not stop us as a religious and moral community. The role of religion and religious community is not to get bogged down in the exact details of tax percentages or IRS codes. We are not legislators, nor are we supposed to be, but we are a moral compass. We seek not to dictate exact terms, but call out injustice and champion human dignity and push that moral arc of the universe further in the direction of where it should be. 
We must use our voice to push our lawmakers to develop their moral imagination and prophetic vision, to imagine a world where more concern is given to the survival of the poor than to the convenience of the rich. Asking more from the wealthy is not unfair. It's not mean, it's not presumptuous. It is in fact a long overdue corrective to a system that has been long warped in the wealthy's favor. Many folks without wealth don't even know how warped the system is. We can point to history itself, knowing that taxes used to be significantly higher on the wealthy 50 years ago, when unsurprisingly the wealth gap was a lot less, the middle class much bigger, and social mobility flowed much quicker. Healthy taxes on the wealthy is not radical, it is actually tradition. We can point to the tax codes and how warped they are. For example, many wealthy people make far more money on their stocks than from their salaries. And that's great for them because stock income is taxed at far lower rates than salaries. Could those tax codes that make those stocks so much less taxed be because wealthy people and those who have stocks make the rules? Or we can just look at Social Security. We hear a lot about how it is going to run out. I have friends who don't think they will ever get Social Security and will never retire. Running out of Social Security would devastate the middle class and the poor. And yet recently I discovered that if you make more than $140,000, any additional income beyond that isn't taxed for Social Security. Could we save it if we taxed income up to 200,000? Would people making 200,000 really suffer from that extra tax? I doubt it. It could literally save the lives of seniors to do that. In a few minutes, you will hear about how our congregation is hoping to make laws to correct this warped tax code, to correct this warped tax inequality, wealth inequality. And just remember this, moral budget justice is moral and religious work. We do it because our faith calls us to fight for equality, to make sure that everyone in this world gets what they need. We don't do it out of spite for those who have too much, but out of love for those who have too little. We do it but because for millions of Americans, wealth equality literally means poverty, despair, hunger, sickness, and death. We do it because wealth inequality assaults human dignity. It curtails our freedom to live, and it mocks the American dream that says that hard work can lead to success and happiness. I hope that you will join me in dreaming and believing that things can be different. Budget justice, moral imagination, Unitarian Universalism, it means embracing the radical but common sense idea that everyone should have enough to live. That way, when a real child asks us why the world is the way it is, we can say because it is what it is because we believed it should be fair and we worked to make it so. We can answer without shame or guilt or resignation, but instead with pride, 
knowing we did what was right, even though it was hard. May this be our work, and amen. Good morning. My name is Anthony Pulgram. Thank you, Reverend Schuyler, for inviting me to speak about our fourth youth social justice team and our current initiative. The ongoing pandemic has made ever more apparent the social inequities in our society. And in New York, we are at a critical inflection point where lawmakers are now deciding how to address our current budget shortfall projected to be 60 billion over the next four years. The proposed austerity plans call for draconian cuts to social services. Invest in Our New York, the coalition that Schuyler just referenced, has proposed six legislative bills to end tax breaks for the wealthiest New Yorkers, and it would raise 50 billion to ensure quality education, jobs, housing, and healthcare for all. I find three of the legislative priorities particularly compelling. The first is a progressive income tax where New Yorkers would pay a higher rate if they earn significantly more money. The second is a capital gains tax, which Skyler referenced, which taxes income from investments like stocks, the same as wages. And the third is a billionaire's tax, which allows for additional tax on extreme wealth. So after the coffee hour today at 1230, we're going to have an open Zoom workshop which details the work of Invest in Our New York, and you're invited to attend, and the link to join will be presented now in the chat. So our social justice team is organizing a call relay in support of Invest in Our New York. This will be on Tuesday, February 23rd, in nine days. We're planning a full day of calls to Governor Cuomo's office, and everyone in the call relay will sign up for a specific time between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. The call and associated documentation we've set up requires about a 15-minute commitment from each participant. In advance of the February 23rd call relay, Brian Kramer and I will be hosting a 40-minute call relay training session. The first is Wednesday of next week at 11 a.m., and if you can't make that, there'll be another on Thursday at 6 p.m., where we'll debunk the challenge of calling your representative and share tips and techniques about how to make your call a success. We'll also share testimonials from politicians articulating the value of direct calls and their impact on decision-making. The link to RSVP for a training session is now in the chat as well. We hope you'll plan to attend one of the two training sessions and then join our call relay on February 23rd. Your 15-minute investment can go a long way towards bringing about social justice in New York. We look forward to welcoming you to our team. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Amber Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society, and I am really excited to get to sit down with Reverend Skylar Vogel to talk about this very interesting, very justice-based uh, message that was delivered today talking about wealth, wealth inequality. Uh, and as I've thought through some of my questions for our discussion today, I tried, uh, while I personally may be a person who is also very convicted about these same sorts of things, I tried to think of some more challenging questions that don't just automatically assume that, yeah, this seems like a pretty good idea. So Reverend Skylar, I'd like to start with the first, which is what exactly would you define as unequal wealth? I think unequal wealth exists in any society where 
There are people who have more money than they will ever need. And there are also people in that same society that do not have enough. And whenever you have those two things happening in the same place, then there is wealth inequality that deserves being addressed. Um, there should never be people who don't have enough to live uh, happy lives, safe lives, healthy lives, when there are people who have more money than they will ever need. Um, there's just no way to justify that morally to have such extremes that some people have stuff and other people don't. Um, it should be pretty clear and straightforward, I think. Uh, but unfortunately, as we all know, uh, that is the world that we, we live in. So it's not so much about numbers versus, you know, it's not like, oh, well, everybody needs to have at least $50,000 a year and we can't have anybody making more than $13 billion. It's not specific numbers. It's more, you know, do is are there these people that exist and are living in such a way that they'll, despite spending thousands of dollars each day, could never ever blow through their money while people struggle to pay rent, to put a roof over their head, to get food. Uh, it's more about the that accessibility um, than about like a specific number in your mind. Yeah, you know, I think I'm sure economic uh, economists could put together a number that that qualifies as enough money that we could have, right? You know, some people talk about uh, abolishing billionaires and that feels like a fairly reasonable thing for us to do as a society. I mean, a billion dollars is a ton of money, uh, more with, may, way more than anyone will need or generations after them will need when they inherit that. Um, and of course, money goes is more or less depending on where you live, right? You know, a $15 minimum wage feels very different in New York than it does in South Dakota. Um, and, uh, and that's just reality. But I think the important thing for us as moral people, people who care about equality and the right to that, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is that, that not all of us have the freedom to live the kind of life we want to. Um, and there's part of that is our, our basic human needs are not able to be met. We don't have good housing. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough money to send our kids to school. Um, we don't have enough money to pay for our health care. Basic stuff, right? Uh, basic needs should always be filled by a society, uh, particularly when there's money available that people aren't using and just sitting in stocks. Um, and then I would argue that people also deserve more than the basic minimum just to survive. Um, a sustenance existence is not one of freedom. It's not one of joy. Sustenance lifestyle is barely more than than slavery masked as wage earning. Um, if you basically are forced to work a job that you do not like uh, and may undermine your, your your dignity and you have no other choices, there's that is basically what slavery is. Um, and so we need to move to a society where not only are our basic needs met, but we also have the freedom to make choices about how we choose to live our lives. Um, and that some of that means being able to choose our careers, our jobs, um, have the flexibility to change them if they are not giving us life. Um, and seeing it not just, you know, the, the structure of society does not just exist to give us sustenance, but also to give us happiness. Um, and all of that, those two categories of both sustenance and also happiness can be fulfilled while having people taxed who are wealthy, so they're not so wealthy that they never need that money, right? Um, you can have both, you can have happiness and sustenance and also have people who have more than that all living in the same society. 
but we choose not to tax people that way. We choose to have people who don't have what they basically need to live. We don't have people who have the freedom to be happy. And yet we allow people to have all these resources um, that they'll never need and never use because we feel that's okay. Um, and I just don't, I don't understand why we think that's okay when there's clearly people who are, are literally dying because they don't have those resources that some people do. Right. I mean, I think that hits on something that you discussed in the message itself, which was that uh, the way that our system is set up currently and the way with these mega huge profits and, you know, with, with a certain uh, executive of Amazon uh, fast approaching becoming a trillionaire, um, that, that this is based on taking advantage of people. He, you know, he's, he's getting close to being, you know, the closest to human being to ever be close to a trillionaire. And yet uh, Amazon employees can often not find the time to use the bathroom when they're in the warehouse because they got to get everything out quickly and out cheaply. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it seems that the system is just based upon taking advantage of, of the other. And that doesn't seem a very, very morally right thing. No, obviously it isn't. Um, and I think that's why it's so important for for consumers to choose their products, you know, each each thing we buy is a moral choice that that decides do we put our money where um, where people are treating people with kindness and human dignity or or not. Um, we can make those choices. Those who have the privilege to do so can make those choices and contribute in that way, um, almost like a donation. But I think we can also advocate for structural change, and that's what uh, groups and movements like Invest in Our New York are looking at and trying to do, which says that look, this is beyond any individual. We need to we need to tip the scales uh, and treat the working class, keep treat the poor, treat the middle class uh, as if they matter, um, rather than just have all these laws that advantage just the wealthy. Because that's what we have. We have we have really lenient laws for the wealthy who then get to keep a tremendous amount of more money than what the poor working class and middle class do. And the only reason, the reason for that is because the wealthy people are the one who writes the laws. And so they have carved out all these benefits for themselves. And uh, it's not for the benefit of anybody who isn't them. And that makes me think, uh, I, I try, actually tried looking for the, the quote uh, officially as we moved into this discussion time. Uh, but uh, Friere, author of The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, he had said something that it sticks with me, but I don't remember the quote exactly, and I couldn't find it in the short time. But he talks about that, you know, we, we fight for this change, you know, obviously for freedom for the oppressed, for a better world for the oppressed. But the thing is, is that this is also, uh, you know, it brings a more free, more whole world for the wealthy. If, you know, if we move to a more just society, then that benefits everybody as a whole. We, we live in, a, if we live in a more healthy society, then we're going to live you know that that's that's a beneficial it's a you know it's a what is it called when it's only a win for everybody if we live in a in a society that functions healthily and values every single person's lives yeah yeah i think there's there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's true even for the wealthy um <laughs> wealthy people are damaged on an emotional spiritual level uh i think often by wealth like it's no it's you don't have to read very deeply into any of the world religious texts to see a lot of language about the dangers of, of hoarding wealth. Um, whether that's the Buddha being like, being wealthy is not where the answers are, and so I'm going to leave, stop being a prince and, and go and try to 
experience with poverty and moderation. Um, and that was a real choice that he made from Jesus being born to a poor, you know, migrant family that didn't have enough money to find an actual place to stay. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a, a happenstance that in the Christian religion that God chose a poor family to be born into, right? And Jesus then grew up and said things like, you know, the eye of the camel, which it's more likely for someone to uh, someone to get through the eye of a camel than uh, or eye of a needle. I'm I'm blowing this. And maybe we hey, I, I will I will I will step in. <laughs> I will step in as the as the as the Christian <laughs> scriptures expert. <laughs> you use in their scripture knowledge. The it's more likely for yeah. You what is it? Tell it. Tell us what it is. Um, uh, riding a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, which has been interpreted both literally and that there was a specific gate in Jerusalem. That's right. That's right. Uh, but you did also have uh, in James, where I believe it says something along the lines of uh, woe to the wealthy for storing up the workers' wages in their in their storehouses and you know, basically hoarding wealth. That's right. Well, and even Jesus getting angry in the temple, right? The, the one really profound moment of Jesus's anger was when people were mixing money and and religion and and sacredness right and and the idea of idolatrizing money as this thing that's really important so i think there's a lot of a lot of really profound religious reasons to to be skeptical of of wealth uh and and that we need to rebalance scales for that reason well i suppose since you specifically mentioned there religion and and money i think that most people uh, if they thought about UU congregations, they would probably think that they are pretty well off compared to, uh, you know, they're, they're often this very wasp, you know, the, the wealthier um, part of American society. So how do we as UUs uh, religiously and as a denominationally, how do we embrace like this value of, of honoring um, a commitment to fight wealth inequality? Yeah. Um, it is really true that UUs are generally more privileged than the general, certainly American population. Um, we have one of the highest rates of education of any uh, denomination. Um, we are pretty, we do pretty well for ourselves. Not, not that every UU is, is wealthy or upper middle class or even middle class, but as a whole, you know, we are. Um, and, uh, and there's lots of ways we, we can see that in the world. But I think it, it should be a reminder to us that we, um, we have a lot of privileges. Great. I'm always reminded when I speak to colleagues in the city of New York here, particularly those who represent congregations that are not in Manhattan. Um, and you talk to them about how this pandemic has been and, and you hear about all the people in their congregations who have been sick and who have died, all the relatives of members who have been sick and died the the feeling of, of despair uh, and economic devastation that their communities have faced. A lot of these are communities of color, uh, on, you know, immigrant communities. And when I think about Fourth U, we have had people who have been who've been sick. We have had people um, who have been economically um, wounded from this time and are still struggling. But we also have a ton of people who have moved uh, to their second home who, um, have been privileged to be able to basically shelter in place for the last year. Um, you know, uh, 
you know, they, there was a, a meme that I saw on Facebook the other day that like this idea that like there was no quarantine, that what there was is wealthy people working at home and, and poor people bringing them things. Um, and there's real truth to that. And, and most of fourth you, not all fourth you, but and Unitarian Universalists are the people who can work from home and shelter in place and quarantine and feel safe. Um, but a good deal of other New Yorkers, right? Like those people, the people who are bringing food from the Whole Foods, from the restaurants, um, you know, who are uh, delivering the things we want. Those are people who go to church other places and those congregations and those denominations have a very different experience of this pandemic than, than Fourth Universalist. And so I almost feel a little bit guilty about it and shame because I, I can't resonate with that. And all I can say is like, yeah, you know, I think our folks are doing okay, uh, at least health-wise and financially in comparison to what I hear in other places. So I think there's a real privilege that we have to have about about what that what that means for us. Um, and you know, the, the privilege of Unitarian Universalists come in a lot in our theology, our general individualism, you know, our our ability to compartmentalize economic policy from moral policies, right? So like it's easy for you use to say things like, you know, caging children the border is wrong and say that's a clear moral issue. But when it comes to saying, oh, we should we should raise taxes on the rich, all of a sudden we want to dissect the various tax policies and, well, we don't think about this and that's not exactly what we believe in. And is that really what the church should be talking about? And that's a sign of privilege because we can even, we're able to separate economic policy from, from moral policy, right? When people who are poor, they're not playing that same game because they don't even have enough money necessarily to, to even see themselves as impacted by these policies while, while many people at fourth you do. Um, and that is something that in some ways we're lucky to be able to have that privilege that think about the economics of our lives. How is it going to affect our stocks, right? How is this going to affect our retirements or how is it going to affect um, the inheritance we leave to our children? One of the most striking slides that we saw from the presentation on Sunday from Invest in our New York, that only 1% of the New Yorkers will inherit more than $200,000 from their families. Um, I suspect there are a lot of people at Fourth U who e will inherit either more than $200,000 or will have their children inherit more than $200,000. Um, does that, they're all in the 1% of the city. That means there's 99% of people who are less than that. And that's pretty striking, um, I think, as a community to think about that. Even even though I think it's easy for us to be like, well, rent's high, we pay a lot of money on our housing, we don't really have a whole lot of fluid assets, but we probably have a lot of wealth maybe in our homes and and in other areas ah, i mean it's definitely a moment for good um, self-examination so you talked about corona there and i think that that's maybe a, a best last area to discuss this um is corona has made the rich richer um i in my experience as somebody who was over in asia and seeing fairly actually good responses and then also hearing about places like new zealand uh, handling things really well. You know, uh, it seems to me that in, in the U.S., the calculation we've largely made is that enough people will make it through, the rich will keep getting richer, and, you know, it's just kind of, you know, we'll get to the vaccines and it eventually we'll, we'll have it under control enough. You know, even this week, uh, I think I saw a Wall Street Journal article that was like, hey, we might just have to learn to live with it. Um, because it seems that a lot of people, especially the wealthy people, have decided this is good for their pocketbooks. This is good for their stocks, their investment in Zoom. Um, but 
you know, it would take, you know, two months of hard sacrifice and of caring for each and every citizen to like actually get it under control in a more uh, sustained way. And so to me, it seems that a lot of the, a lot of the response to Corona has been very uh, motivated by what works well for the, for the wealthy, just as if, mm-hmm. um, just as so many other issues, like you were talking about how the laws are so often uh, in, in the favor of the wealthy. So I don't, do you, do you want to touch on any of your thoughts regarding Corona and, and wealth inequality? Well, I think one of the most striking things for me, and I think for a lot of people, is that the the w- increase in wealth that so many wealthy people have had, and you don't even have to be that wealthy to have benefited from this. The stock market has done incredibly well the last year, uh, which should be worrisome in some ways, whether how overvalued it might be. But but the fact that people can do so well and that stocks can be so divorced from the reality of everyday people's lives is both is disturbing in many, many ways. Um, and it speaks to what I feel can be a fundamental disconnect between the experiences of the wealthy in times of crisis versus the experience of everyday people in, in America and around the world, right? So so we, we can know that unemployment records are, are at record highs. Um, we can know that industries across America are really struggling, particularly small businesses. We can see the restaurants close. We can see... We know people are moving back in with their parents. Um, and yet the people who often are the ones who make policy and influence those who do are doing great. And this is perfect for them. Um, they have been doing fantastically. And so until that disconnect disappears, we're going to have this, there's going to be a, a discordance, right, with policy and reality. And so we need to find out, and we, the questions we need to be asking ourselves as a society is how do we ensure that the the economy and that the the ways that those in power understand the econ- what economic success looks like mirrors not what benefits those top people or their experience of what's going well, but that those decision makers are using the experience of 99% of Americans, which is not particularly good right now, to make their decisions. And unfortunately, if we continue as we are, where money is in politics, where you know, you're going to get the calls to the rich people are going to get the calls by the politicians who want their money, right? Um, it's their interests that are going to reflect the reality. So it is it is unfortunate. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of work we have to do. And that's part of why these proposals to the raise tax on the wealthy are one solution for that, um, as, as there are many. But this is a fundamental question about equality, it goes back to racism, right? You know, the fact that white wealth is 10 times the amount of that is of people of color in America. Um, there's a lot of profoundly disturbing differences. And of course, the pandemic has exacerbated all those things. Um, you know, crisis mag- magnifies inequality. And unless there's a effort to push back against that, it's just going to keep happening. Well, I want to say thanks for this really great conversation. I know I've said it before on other versions of this discussion, but I feel like there's a lot of really good stuff to, to chew on and think about there uh, and all that discussion that we were having. So I hope that folks who listen to this uh, really enjoyed getting to have a little bit more to, to dive into and think about and reflect on in your own personal life. So Reverend Schuyler, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Ember, and thank you all for listening. And to all of our listeners, as Reverend Schuyler said, thank you. Uh, we always appreciate the likes and comments and such as well. Uh, But thanks for stopping by and for joining us. 